we're going through, if you're new and visiting with us, we're making our way through Matthew's gospel and uh, we've titled our series uh, King. What have we called? I've totally just mind blanked. Something about Jesus being king. Jesus is king. There you go. That's how much it matters. Uh, but the, the theme of Matthew's gospel is the king and his kingdom and that Jesus is the king. Uh, but we're not you know, there yet. We're, he hasn't been crowned, which sort of sort of happens on the cross, so to speak. But for now, we're in the formation phase as Jesus builds his kingdom community. And so would you grab your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 to 20. Now, last week I said that we were going to do Matthew 18 in two parts. Um, I was wrong. I actually planned to do it in three parts. And I, I realized that late on Friday afternoon when I finished my sermon and realized, oh, I meant to do this whole sermon in two weeks rather than one. Uh, so we split the sermon. We're just doing verses 15 to 20. And if you'd like a title for today's message, it's The Pursuit. The Pursuit. And, uh, you know, it's going to help us. This sermon, I think, will be more uh, a foundation and preparation for us as we um, come together over many, many years and decades as a church. It's not something that I think you know, we desperately are struggling with right now, but it's something that will give us a foundation for the future and prepare ourselves for it. So Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 to 20, I am going to read it. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, Take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on, on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would bless the preaching of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we dive in and study this famous passage on so-called church discipline, uh, I thought it'd be you know, helpful for us to back up a little bit and just remember the context of where we're at in Matthew chapter 18 so that we get the tone and motivation right. Uh, this passage is not about a formula for executing punishment or revenge. Uh, this is not sort of, you know, three steps to kicking people out of your church and woohoo, we get to do this finally. That's not, that's not the tone that comes into this. Maybe, um, I don't know if you've ever experienced a church go through church discipline, or maybe people have avoided it because it seems so much like that. But when we look back, we're actually going to see, and when we look out and zoom out, we see that this is a process of humble and loving concern for restoring lost and straying sheep back into the fold. So the whole process of church discipline, which, you know, when you did starting point, we went through this statement on church discipline, and we sort of talked about that's one of the things that you agreed to as you became a member. But the whole point of church discipline is found, or the kind of the heart and tone behind it, in the passage just before. In verses 1 through 14, we saw that the disciples asked this question, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus said, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is whoever humbles himself like a child. That is, they empty themselves of status. They empty themselves of self-regard and self-esteem, and they look to consider others more significant than themselves. We saw that those who are truly humble are concerned for all. They're concerned that everyone's welcomed. They're concerned for everyone's righteousness and holiness, and they're concerned for everyone's progress. And then Jesus gave this parable of the, of the lost sheep and a straying sheep and used that as, as an example of how the father views us and cares us. And let me read verse 12 to 14 for you. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my father who is in heaven 
that one of these little ones should perish. And then look at what follows immediately. Verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So the tone and the heart that comes into this passage, this hard passage on church discipline, is loving concern for all. The whole point of it is restoration and bringing that sheep back into the fold. Grant Osborne says it like this, God's people must emulate God's concern by caring for and watching out for each other. So that's where the heart and motivation is meant to be. But oh, how hard this is. What's your natural and instinctive reaction when you are wronged by someone else? Uh, When someone has done something wrong, like sinned against you in some way, I think our natural, you know, you look at it in the world and even sadly in our church, when we're sinned against, what happens is we feel this experience of hurt. And when we're hurt, we want to feel better. And one common way we seek to feel better when we're hurt is to pursue revenge. To pursue revenge. Now, that sounds a little bit more like a movie plot, like we're watching Taken or a Shakespearean drama with Hamlet. But I think in reality, In some way or another, this is what actually plays out in our hearts. We pursue feeling better and we pursue some form of revenge. We can pursue revenge by either hurting back, lashing out with our tongue or perhaps even our fists, or we get revenge by more subtle means. We share our hurts with others, looking for sympathy, looking to denigrate their character more subtly looking to get people on our side. Or for some, perhaps you seek revenge, but it's a quiet internal process of icing that person out, distancing yourself from them, and perhaps even hating them in your heart and growing bitter. Sadly, this occurs all too often in our relationships, in our families, and even in churches. At times, we can overcome it somehow or by avoidance. You know, we just change life groups or, you know, we change where we're at, change, you know, churches. But in the New Testament and in in the kingdom community that Jesus is building, uh, there was no church down the street. If you had a problem, you had to solve it. If you wanted to have a healthy and loving community, you had to deal with the sins of those who sin against you and the sins of those in your community. And to solve these issues, We need the heart of God who seeks to restore his straying and stumbling lost sheep. And so Jesus, as our senior pastor, provides instructions for how we are to practically do this, how we're to go after the straying Christian or even after a brother or sister who sins against us personally. Because the reality is this, we cannot avoid sin in the new kingdom community. But we, Jesus has provided a way for us to humbly and lovingly deal with it for the good of all. We, we, church, we, yeah, we love each other. I cannot wait to regather. But we cannot avoid sin in our community. We cannot avoid people straying from the, the, the good shepherd. And we can't avoid people sinning against us. We're going to have problems. But here in verses 15 to 20, and then we'll see in 21 to 35, Jesus has provided a way for us to humbly and lovingly deal with this for the good of all. So for today, I want to look at this passage in two parts. Point number one, the process of pursuit. Number two, the purpose of pursuit. The process of pursuit and the purpose of pursuit. Let's look at point number one the process of pursuit. I'm going to stumble over my words today. I think if I keep saying that too many times. So as G- what's about to happen is that Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to be crucified. He's going to die. And then he's going to establish his church. He's going to gather his people through his spirit after he's risen again. And he's going to lead them to make disciples of all the nations. And as he leaves, he's going to start all these new churches and communities full of imperfect people. Saved, yes. Justified, yes. But not yet fully sanctified. Not yet fully 
perfect. And so he provides this situation with how to deal with these imperfections fairly. And so this passage in verse 15 to 20, although it says when someone sins against you, that's actually not um, technically in the original earliest manuscripts. Most likely this passage is, is for two purposes. When you are sinned against, or when you know someone in your congregation or close to you is straying after sin. So it's a bit more broad than just this only works if you're sinned against. I think it's, it's a, bright, a broader channel and a broader stream that we can look at. You know, so if someone is spreading lies about you or gossiping or slandering about you, or someone is harsh and rude to you in a way that is just really hurtful and painful, this is a process to help you. Or if, if you know someone in our church, particularly, that is straying after some sexual sin or, or some false business practice or some you know, major way, and this passage helps us to know what are we meant to do so that we don't just default to being Hamlet and like going after revenge and wearing black and trying to kill people. That would not be good. So we have a better way. We have Jesus's three-step plan uh, for dealing with conflict and sin within the church. So let's look at the three steps in verses 15 through 17. Step number one, verse 15, when we deal with sin and straying sheep, step number one, bring it privately. Bring it privately. Verse 15 again. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So the first step that Jesus says when we've got these problems is to bring the issue up, bring the sin, bring the problem up privately, personally, one-to-one. And I look at what Jesus says. He says, if your brother sins. Now, what we're talking about here is not just differences of preference, you know, uh, differences of personality. We're talking about biblical sins, that someone has actually sinned against you uh, and it's it probably in some way, it's so serious that you can't just overcome it or forgive it or, or bear with it. It's a sin. You've got a Bible verse. Uh, you can, you know, it's a sin. I and mean, it's not just a preference or a thought or something that annoys you. Uh, perhaps they've gossiped or slandered. Perhaps they're making racist remarks. They've denigrated you. They've stolen from you. Uh, any number of things, terrible things can happen in churches. If your brother sins against you, what are you to do? Go and tell him his fault. Uh, the word there is to reprove him or correct, uh, convict him. That is, you go not in a spirit of just straight out, you, you did this, you sinned, you need to repent. But actually, it's more this heart of go and tell him. Are you aware or her? Are you aware that when you said this, oh, that really hurt me, that that was a painful thing for me to hear? I felt like my whole you know, being was kind of squashed or do you realize that when you, you, you borrowed that thing and said you'd give it back, you've never given it back? Um, would you be able to give it back to me, please? <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. So you go and tell him and you give him or her the chance uh, to hear God's word, to hear the charge against them uh, and to be convicted by the Holy Spirit. Uh, so it's not a flat out rebuke, but a revealing of the sin that has taken place. Notice that Jesus says between you and him alone. Now, I think this is probably the most important thing to protect community. It must be stressed. Where at all possible, go alone. Don't tell everyone else first. This is a private matter, and this is vital for the health of our church community. And not only do we have a responsibility to keep private offences private where possible, but I also want to stress, and this is where the whole community um, responsibility comes in. If someone is about to share to you a sin that someone else has committed against them, you have a responsibility as a church member to stop them and to say, well, well have, you, have you spoken to the person about this? Do I need to, I, I don't think I need to know this detail. Um, have, you, have you brought it to them? Is there any way you can tell me this situation without revealing who it is? Uh, because Jesus is clear that the, the first step is to bring it privately. And so if someone is gossiping about someone else's sin to you, we also have a responsibility to say, hey, hey, Matthew 18, 15 says, go to him privately. If you haven't gone to him yet uh, or her yet, then please don't come to me because um, all I'm going to do is just send you to them. 
And I think we need to build that as a practice, as a community. That will protect us. Now, I, I do want to stress just a few little caveats here before we press on. Uh, this is hard. Uh, sharing sins with other people, I'm not saying it's easy. Uh, it could, you know, be a really difficult thing. And you might not know, am I meant to do this or not? So there is a place, I think, for wise biblical counsel. And, and maybe there's a way that you can ask me or someone in the church, hey, I've got this situation. Uh, but sharing it in such a way that doesn't reveal, so it's like without saying their name, basically, you know, they uh, just hypothetically, this person has got this job, they're a pastor in Parramatta, they've got a family of six, and they sin against me in this way. It's like, wait a second, I know who you're talking about. So finding a way to, to get counsel that doesn't reveal who the sin's about, I think that that would be fine. But I also want to make a caveat in, in, in special cases of abuse and for vulnerable people that it's probably... This is not a manual, like a. this is how it has to be done every single time. This is a broad principle for the kingdom community. And so if putting yourself, if going to someone privately is going to put yourself in a vulnerable position, that I don't think Jesus would be saying, go and, go and do it. Um, you might need to bring someone along uh, to protect you or to create a safe space. And if you, know, if you are someone that is experiencing or has experienced abuse, uh, it is totally right for you to go to the police uh, and to bring in the law of the land to help you. I want to stress that. And as your pastor, I want you to know that I'm, I'm here to care for you in that process as well. And that um, you can come to me and without sharing names and details necessarily, I can help counsel you through that process. So a few little caveats there for go to him alone, but in general for 99% of the times, bring it privately. And what's the goal? What's the goal? Well, in the movies, the goal is revenge. You know, in Hamlet, it's kill my father-in-law Claudius or my uncle rather. But Jesus says, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. The whole point of this passage is restoration. The whole point is to gain and win your brother, not to you know, make them feel bad. It's not this revenge moment where you're like, Haha, I've got a verse now. Do you know that when you did that, you made me feel, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, the point of this is someone has hurt you or there's a sin happening and you don't want that person to live in this area of sin and walking from God. And so you're like, I'm, I'm going to go after you like the father has come after me. My goal is to win you, that you would be more righteous and holy, that you would know that the way that you've done that is a sinful thing, that we can have fellowship again. The whole point is to gain your brother, not to, you know, make them feel all shame and guilt necessarily. Now, it's fine for people to feel guilt and shame when they've sinned, uh, but we want to lead them to the gospel that they will be restored into righteousness. If you don't want to win your brother or sister, then you're probably not qualified to actually engage in this process. So verses 12 to 14 make it very clear. The point of this is to bring back straying sheep. And if you don't want them to be brought back and to be up the front worshiping with you in fellowship and community, then you may not be qualified to actually go in and complete this process. You've still got some more hard work you need to do. You need to ask yourself, why am I, why do I want to confront them? Is it to inflict hurt or is it out of a humble and loving concern? And let me stress this. If you are the one confronted and say, you know, someone says, okay, you get a text after the sermon today. Can I chat with you? But uh-oh. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Verse 15. It's happening. It's to me. Uh, can I encourage you? And this is, I think, where it's meant to, you know, that we don't need to go through the whole church discipline process. If we are like verses 1 through 4 says in Matthew 18, humble like children, putting ourselves in the lowest position, assuming that we're, we're probably sinning in ways that we don't even realize, assuming that there's, there's stuff in us that just comes out and we don't even realize it. And so if, you, if someone confronts you, be like that humble person that recognizes the guilt and the shame, recognizes the sins that they've hurt. And if you don't see it right in that moment, don't just go, no. Maybe say, can I think about it? Can you give me time to pray about it? Can I, can I have some time for the Holy Spirit to convict me because I'm not feeling it just yet? And can we talk about it another time? 
And so the hope is, is that if we do this often and for small and big things, the church discipline ends here. That's the goal. <laughs> you send, I repent, we're back in fellowship, the debt is paid for, let's move on. But what if you muster up the courage and love, but they don't listen, repent or change, or they disagree with you, they don't think they've done anything wrong? Well, that leads us to step two, verse 16. So verse one, uh, verse 15, bring it privately. Verse uh, Step two, verse 16, bring in witnesses. Bring in witnesses. Now, this needs some explaining. Verse 16, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So private confrontation has failed. Now we need communal help. And to get that help, Jesus commands bringing along one or two other people with you, not a mob, not a gang, not like all these people think that you sinned. That's not the nature of this conversation. What it is, is it's witnesses, not of the event itself, because it might have been a private event, but they may have been witnesses of the event itself, but witnesses to your follow-up conversation. So the witness does not mean they had to witness the crime here, though the original context in Deuteronomy 19 that he's quoting was that. But for here, I think that the reference is more broad because it's, it potentially is private sins. And so the witnesses here are to witness the conversation, the people that you bring in as witness or to be godly men and women who will act objectively, who will give counsel objectively once the facts are laid out. They're not your supporters or people who are to get this person. So Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 19, 15, uh, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And uh, this was written, uh, like I said, for visible witnesses beforehand. And it was to protect people against false accusations so that people couldn't do what just happens now so quickly on the internet. So-and-so did this to me and everyone goes, oh, that's terrible. What a horrible person that person must be. No, no, biblical, biblical justice is that you have to establish the facts of a case before you can render judgment. And so the witnesses come in and the witnesses, you know, in the Old Testament, this was particularly for the case of murder, the witnesses would give counsel. And if the person was convicted of murder, the witnesses had to be the first ones to throw the stone and put the person to death. So it was a weighty matter. It wasn't just like, oh, yeah, 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 they did it, I'm sure. It's like, no, no, no. If you're going to be a witness to this, you've got to be willing to pick up a rock, okay, and be a part of the process. And so that's the kind of weight we ought to bring to this sort of confrontation and this kind of communication. So the witness uh, comes along, and what they do in this conversation is that they, they help sort out the facts of the case. Okay, Riley, you've got this charge, um, and, or, you know, against Riley, say, put it against me. Uh, Riley disagrees. Uh, let's hear your side of the story, Riley. Oh, and I give my side and they say, actually, Riley, we think you're wrong. Uh, we, we actually think you've sinned in this way. And we think that what you need to do is you need to repent and you need to seek forgiveness. And because you sinned publicly, probably what you need to do is go back to your life group and admit that you what you said was you know, wrong, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, that's how the witnesses function works there. They establish the facts of the case that the sin is a real sin and the call the, the accused to repentance or to ask the accuser to see things differently. So you might be a witness and you go, actually, I, I, think, I think that the way you're seeing this is misinformed. Uh, they weren't intending this or you've, you've sinfully judged the intention of their heart, but they're saying that they didn't have any intention for this sin. So I think you need to drop this case, et cetera. So the witnesses work in this kind of way, I believe. And, and they bring in objectivity. Proverbs 8.17 says, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. So it may be found that the one bringing the charge was actually mistaken or wrong. Or you may be found if the charge is brought against you that you were mistaken or wrong and that actually, okay, two or three other people, they all think I did the wrong thing. I'm going to be humble here. And I'm going to repent. But what happens if they still don't think they're in the wrong? Well, verse 17, the final step, so you bring it privately, you bring in witnesses, verse, uh, step three, bring it to the church. Verse 17, 
And this is the only second time and only the last time Jesus will use the word church in Matthew's gospel, ecclesia, the gathering. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, tell it to the ecclesia, the gathering that Christ died for, the, the, the local body of believers. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So under step three, bring it to the church, there's sort of two processes. First, the witnesses and, and the one bringing the charge brings it to the church. They tell the whole gathering after the case has been established. But now, obviously, this is only going to be for very serious sins or very stubborn people. So we're not, you know, we're, we're going to reserve the right for these type of things. But if people are continually refusing to repent um, or refusing to yeah, yeah, say sorry or change in a particular way, we bring it to the whole church, perhaps in a church family meeting. We tell the whole gathering. And we say something along the lines of, you know, so-and-so has been, uh, say, sadly, it's a, a case of adultery. Uh, so-and-so has um, been caught uh, sleeping with another woman and has been accused of it, has been brought to their attention. They are unwilling to change. They're unwilling to repent and change their life. And so now we tell it to you, church. Now, this is the, the case. And we ask that you would go after them and pursue them and call them into repentance. And so we tell it to the church. And so there's this sort of implied time gap, I believe, in Jesus's instructions here. But if they still not repent, so if there's some period of time for them, because the whole thing is we want them to repent. The whole point is that they would change. But after some time, they still don't change. Then the final step is reached. And Jesus says, if he refuses to listen even to the church, well, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So the final step is, you know, it looks cultish and whatever, but it's, it's ostracism. It's excommunication. Um, it's to remove them from the community, to remove them from the fellowship. Why so harsh? Well, if you look at the whole process, they've refused to hear private correction. They refuse to listen to the counsel of one or two credible Christians. They refuse to listen to the entire church coming against them and saying, you are in sin, brother or sister. Please repent. Please come back to you know, your senses. Now they've, they've said no. And so they've gotten to this point. They've hardened their hearts so much or they disagree so much that you can no longer really consider them a part of the kingdom community. You, you, the judgment of the church now is you must not be a Christian. You, you mustn't have the Holy Spirit. You mustn't, you know, be a part of our community because you will not listen to Jesus who is working through us to speak to you. It's a, it's a very, you know, intense kind of thing to say. And so what happens? Well, you treat them as a Gentile, that is an outsider or a tax collector. That's like the most hated people. And that sounds really harsh. And what that means is really is we're not best buds anymore. The fellowship is broken. There's no friendship. There's no going over for dinner. And what you do, though, is you still have a heart full of love, like the, the father that seeks the sheep and wants them back in the fold. But you can't keep hanging out with them as if like nothing, like it's not like, oh, we agree to disagree. You can just continue in your adultery and, and keep coming to the Lord's table and keep worshiping. No, the church of Jesus Christ wields the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And um, as we're going to see in a moment, at some times we have to close the doors. Now, the hope is that through the ostracism, through the exclusion through the loss of friendship and community, the benefits of being a part of a church, um, as Paul says, is they're handed over to Satan. That is that they're, they're now out of the protection of the church. They're in the kingdom of the world. That they will, in their hearts, start to see their loss. They will come to their senses and repent and come back. That's the hope. Uh, I think that's the, that's the guided intention. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians, you see, Paul excommunicates someone, and then in 2 Corinthians, you see him reinstate them because that person has um, brought, you know, is repented. So it's full on. 
But when sin happens in our community against one another, or when we um, know of someone who is straying in a serious way, and the seriousness can be that they just won't repent. They won't repent. They won't change. They won't change. They won't change. What are we to do? Well, we bring it privately. We bring in witnesses. And finally, we bring it to the church. Now, this whole process, if you're new to Christianity or you've never seen this happen, you're like, this is crazy. You guys are psychos. Uh, you're a cult. Um, or you might be thinking, like, what authority do I have? I'm just, a, I'm just a church member. Isn't this what, like, bishops and, you know, pastors are meant to do? But notice Jesus is talking to the whole community here. This is a, this isn't, you don't even have to have necessarily the leaders involved. I think it's wise, but Jesus doesn't say, well, gather the pastors. It says, you know, gather two or three other people and and bring it to the church. Now, I think, you know, best practice would be to involve leaders because I think they can help. But this is actually, you know, an authority structure that Jesus has given us all. Um, and you might also be thinking, isn't this wide open to abuse? Uh, and sadly, the reality is yes. But Jesus says, and that gives us lots of commands that people abuse, but that doesn't mean we get rid of them. So Jesus deals with that, though, in verses 18 to 20. So what authority do we have to do this? Well, verse 18, truly, I say to you, so Jesus is emphasizing, like, uh, this is real. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on, on, earth, on earth, agree about anything they ask, so in prayer, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So what authority do we have? Well, we see here that the gathered church has heavenly authority when they humbly seek God's will and presence. The gathered church has heavenly authority when they humbly seek God's will and presence. Now, this isn't flippant. Like if two or three of us gather for and ask for a Ferrari, like we need a church Ferrari. We just do. To fit into Parramatta, two or three of us agree we need a Ferrari. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll take that. That's fine. Um, no, the context is very serious. This is the case of someone, a, a soul, straying from the good shepherd, walking into the valley of death and darkness and sin and temptation. This is a grave matter. And so if we soberly and seriously seek God's face, Jesus promises to gather with us and lead us through this process. And then as he gathers and presences himself among us as a gathered community, we have his authority. We have his authority. We actually have the authority to do this. This isn't authoritarianism. This is legitimate biblical authority. And what a comfort that verse, verse 20 is to me as I consider, oh my goodness, I can't imagine ever having to do this. How would we know? Well, Jesus doesn't leave us. He promises he'll be right with us if we ever have a situation where we need to do this. We won't be on our own. If we humbly and hungrily seek him, he will lead us and he will guide us and he will help us in the process. So putting it all together, verses 15 uh, through 20, in one sentence, I think Jesus is saying this. We cannot avoid sin in the kingdom community, but we can deal with it in a humble and loving way. We can't avoid sin. It's going to happen, sadly but we can deal with it in a humble and loving way. And like Jesus said, the way we deal with it 99 times out of 100 is bring it privately. Then if it doesn't work, bring in witnesses. That doesn't work, bring it to the church. And if that doesn't work, excommunication. It's, it's full on, but that's how Jesus cares for his people and for his church. Now, I'm sure you might have many questions about how all this works, and, and so do I, so we can ask them together. But you might be asking this one question. Why do this? Not really. Like, it seems so harsh. It seems so extreme. It seems so unnecessary. Won't this make us look weird if we were actually to do this as a church? Isn't this what you read about in magazines? Cultish church excludes members because they don't believe in X, Y, or Z. Well, that leads me to point number two. 
the purpose of pursuit. The purpose of pursuit. Remember, this is all about pursuing lost sinners. Um, verses 12 to 14 shows us. And I'm going to give us four reasons why we ought to do this. Four reasons why we should pursue this process of church discipline. Number one, why should we do this? Even though it's weird? Well, we do it because we are commanded by Christ and the rest of the New Testament. We do it because we are commanded by Christ and the rest of the New Testament. And in some ways, we don't need the rest of the reasons. That should be enough. He said to do it. And if you read through the rest of the New Testament, you'll see many examples of the church actually doing this. This isn't just like one of those one-off texts. This, this crops up. And if you, if you just took the next you know, couple of months and read through the New Testament looking for church discipline, you'd see it like 8, 9, 10, 12 times. Now, let me show you a few examples. In Acts chapter 5, with Ananias and Sapphira, they lie about how much money they've brought to the church. Peter confronts them and says, is this everything? And they say, yeah, yeah, that's everything. But they'd actually kept some aside. And they said, well, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. And then God excommunicates them by killing them on the spot. That's full-on church discipline. We don't have that power, and we're not going to enact that power. But that's, what, that's the first instance of it. And the result of that, if you read Acts chapter 5, is very clear the next thing that happens is the church of God grows and expands and multiplies and is filled with power. That's strange. Then if you look, you'll see that Peter is an immune. The one who holds the keys of the kingdom of heaven, well, he gets rebuked by Paul because he disregards the gospel and starts to live with distinction between Jew and Gentile. And so Paul calls him out on it and asks him to change his life. And Peter does, thankfully, and repents and is restored. In 1 Corinthians 5, as I mentioned, Paul commands the immediate excommunication of someone who's engaged in incestuous adultery. He's sleeping with his mother-in-law. And Paul just says, it's known, it's flagrant, it's unrepentant, cast him out. And various times, Paul, in his letters, you'll see um, commands that false brothers, false teachers, and divisive people be cast out of the church. And he even named them by name, Hymenaeus and Alexander and 1 Timothy. And if you look at Titus chapter 3, look what Paul says. Just after he preaches the gospel, you know, by grace you have been saved, and, you know, washed and regenerated, and et cetera, et cetera. We memorize that verse. And then he says, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. And as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. That's really heavy. Uh, two warnings and you're out. So this process goes through the whole New Testament. And the last kind of experience you see is in Revelation. Jesus writes letters to the churches and to the church in Thyatira, listen to the words that Jesus says to them. Revelation 2 verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent um, of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Uh, so that's a, an intense example of Jesus bringing church discipline onto the church in Thyatira um, because of their toleration of someone who allows sin to happen. So why should we do it? Well, it's commanded by Christ and the rest of the New Testament. But given that church discipline, uh, I read is somewhere else, is about as popular as a public hanging these days, I'll give a few more reasons uh, to help us. As I've repeated, uh, second, Christ commands us to do it for the sake of the sinner. So we overcome the awkwardness, we overcome the pain, we overcome the weirdness for the sake of the sinner. The sinner who acts in this way is in a desperately dangerous situation. 
they are hardening their heart like Pharaoh. And if they do not humble themselves like a child, Jesus says they will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And therefore, we must go after them like the father in verse 12 to 14, seeking the straying sheep with the purpose of gaining them and winning them back to restore them and not punish them. So we do this for the sake of sinners. Now, there might be a lot of things that you can bear with, you know, sins that people commend, sin against you, and you're like, I'm just going to bear with it. Okay, love covers a multitude of sins. But if someone is in constant sin and in a way that is leading them away from Christ, we have a duty to go after them, to chase them down. Uh, even people that have joined our church for a period of time and then disappear, if we know they're no longer in a church anymore, there's a sense in which we ought to go after them also. Not because we're like hounding them to join our church, but we want them to be back in Christ. And it's worth saying this. If we engage in a practice of church discipline, we need to know that discipline is a sign of love, not hatred. Discipline is a sign of love, not hatred. In our culture, anything negative is seen as hate speech. Making someone feel bad means you're assaulting them. But making someone feel bad is not always wrong. Causing someone to feel godly guilt, shame, and sorrow and regret can be an expression of undying love to them. People need to feel shame and guilt for what they've done. Biblical shame and guilt. And our culture is so against that. But we ought not to buy into that as a church. We ought not to. That's a lie. That's a lie that will destroy us from the inside out. Look what God says in Proverbs 3, 11 to 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. The author of Hebrews picks up on that and says, if you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Discipline is a sign of love. Chasing down people is a sign that we actually love them enough to not let them walk away or to be hardened in their sin. And then if they repent and they come back, we will party like the angels in heaven. We'll party like the father, you know, and the prodigal son who kills the fattened calf. If we got to a point where sadly and tragically, we had to excommunicate a member and say, you are no longer, we deem you not as a Christian. You cannot take the Lord's table anymore. You can come to church still and work and, and hear the sermons, but you cannot participate in the Lord's supper. Now, that's what excommunication I think really means. You, you can't come to the table. But if they at some time, three, six months down the track, repent of their sin, we would have a joyous celebration of public repentance and public re-inclusion back into the community. And we'd probably kill you know, a fattened calf or have 53 harbor chickens or something like that. It would be a joyful experience. And that's the point because we want to gain them. We want to win them because Jesus loves them and God loves them. That's the whole point. We seek the straying sheep because God loves them. Third, we do it for the sake of the church community. We do it for the sake of the protection of the church community. It's not loving. This is not loving. To allow warped, arrogant, and proud people to go through the church community in flagrant sin, spreading division, lies, blasphemies, and hurt. That's not loving. That's painful. Look what Paul says in response to his excommunication in 1 Corinthians 5. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And verse 11, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. But what have I to do with judging outsiders? So this isn't about like we don't hang out with non-Christians. This is about people who say, I'm a Christian, but I'm a drunkard. Or I'm a Christian, and I'm just going to keep on doing my sin, and I'm not, I'm not stopping. 
It's not those inside the church whom you are to judge. God judges the outside. And then he says, quoting the Old Testament, purge the evil person from among you. Why? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. You allow sin to go untreated. Well, Mark Dever says it like this. Neglecting corrective discipline can be deadly for a church. No one likes the prospects of going under the knife, but sometimes it is the knife that saves your life. But unrepented sin and those who continually cherish it are cancers that must be removed if the body is to enjoy health and engage in productive work. We must do this to protect our community. To protect our life groups. If there's someone that's constantly gossiping, we've got to go after that because it's going gonna, it's gonna to destroy our life group. If someone's constantly causing division or believes heresies, we have to go after that to protect everyone because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so a little bit of surgery can save the whole body. So we do it because we're commanded. We do it for the sake of the sinner. We do it for the sake of our um, church community. And finally, we do it for the sake of our witness to the world. It brings reproach on the kingdom community of Jesus Christ that we would permit such dishonorable and unholy practices in our gathering. 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12 says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And Matthew 5.13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. For the sake of our city, for the sake of our witness, for the sake of the holy name of Jesus Christ going forth, we must engage in this type of practice, that we would not lose our saltiness, that we would not bring reproach on the name of Christ. So it's weird. It's hard. It's not going to be easy. I've only ever seen it done once, uh, and it was difficult. But by God's grace, we got through it as a church. We do it because we're commanded. We do it for the sake of the sinner. We do it for the sake of our church community. And we do it for the sake of our witness to the world. We cannot avoid sin in the kingdom community, but we can deal with it in a humble and loving way. So friends, let me close. Is there anything you need to deal with? Is there anything that is maybe even the spirit is putting on your heart now that Perhaps you've sinned against someone and maybe you can go step pre one and seek them out and repent before they have to come to you and, and, and confront you with your sin. Well, maybe there's sins that people are straying into that you know of in our church. Perhaps someone is living in some form of sin and you know it. Oh, I think this passage is saying, go in, in love, go after them, bring it to God. Seek his guidance, but pursue them. Pursue them. If someone brings us into you, be prepared. Let's prepare our hearts to be confronted and let's humble ourselves. And ultimately, ultimately we pursue. We do this because he first pursued us. Jesus, the great shepherd, did not leave us to die off in the wilderness to walk around with the cancer of sin and, and just slowly bleed out. Instead, he came running after us. He bore us upon himself and carries us back in. And it's not just the cost of chasing us down that Jesus bore, you know, like it's painful, it's awkward, but he even bears upon himself our sins. He, he takes upon us the very vileness and things that cause God's wrath and he bears it upon himself. And so as we think about other people's sins and our sins and chasing them down, let's, let, let's consider most of all Christ on the cross crucified for my sin and our sin. Let's see him there. The, lamb, the, the shepherd who pursues us is the lamb that was slain. 
The one who goes after the lost sheep is the one who becomes that sheep on the cross and is abandoned by God so that we can be brought in, so that we can have a church, so that we can know Jesus Christ, see him crucified and know that your sins are dealt with if you repent of them. You don't have to be afraid of this process because if you've trusted in Christ, it's paid for. If it's trusted in Christ, you have his spirit. You can find the power to change. You can find the power to repent. You can find the power to actually go about in humility and as a beautiful community. So if you're feeling convicted, rush to the cross. If you feel a weight of burden of sins or or fears, rush to the cross and see the good shepherd who became the lamb that was slain for you. Confess your sins and receive his forgiveness. I'm going to finish by reading 1 John 4 that Henry read in his exhortation this morning. It's a perfect summary. And then we're going to sing, he will hold me fast. Because our great hope is not that we would get this all together, but that he would hold us through it. 1 John 4, beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God, excuse me, was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Let us love one another enough to practice the pursuit. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would convict us of any sins that we need to repent of. Humble us and prepare us to be confronted. Would you protect our community and hold us fast that we would be a beautiful and holy and righteous and repenting and forgiving community in Jesus' name. Amen.